friends and those who are around us. And we're focusing during this five weeks on one passage from the Bible in the book of Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 18 to 32. Ephesians 5 verse 18 to 32. We're leaning on two resources for this series. The first is um, a book called The Meaning of Marriage, uh, written by Tim Keller, a best-selling New York uh, pastor and author. And the second resource that we're leaning on is uh, a series that was done by one of our partner churches in the Advanced Network of Churches, which we're a part of. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Ephesians chapter 5, 18. And if you're new here or you forgot your Bible, no problem. We've got today's key verses up on the screen for you. And while you're turning there, I'll pray for us. God, we want to thank you that uh, you've made us friends of God. And uh, we want to thank you that you haven't left us to wander through this world on our own and uh, figure things out. But God, thank you that uh, through your word, we can have wisdom and truth straight from heaven to earth. Thank you that today on a Sunday morning, each one of us can hear the voice of God through your words speaking into our situations. God, it's amazing. It's amazing. So God, help all of us as we listen. Help me as I speak. We ask that your word would come with power and with authority that it would demolish wrong ways of thinking, misconceptions and untruths we've been fed by the media, even by our own experience. And God, that the fruit of this would be transformed hearts, transformed lives and transformed marriages for your glory. And everyone present said, Amen. Amen. Great. Now, the greatest single enemy of marriage, I'm arguing this morning, and uh, the, the, the cause of many, many problems in marriage, public enemy number one, if you like, is self-centeredness. Now, I know that there are lots of different kinds of problems in different marriages, but at the root, at the root of most of these problems, if you trace them all the way down, you will arrive at self-centeredness. Those of you who've been through a divorce or those of you who've had the misfortune of watching a divorce happen, if you think about it, you'll find that this idea of self-centeredness and what self-centeredness means is it means me at the center of my world and me at the center of your world. This idea of self-centeredness was probably at the root of it. In fact, the reason for our divorce with God is this exact same idea of self-centeredness. As human beings, we are obsessed with ourselves. We want things our way. We want to achieve our goals. We want to have our needs met. And the list goes on and on. And the Bible teaches that mankind fell away from God in a kind of divorce when we decided to stop living for God's glory and to start living for our own glory. That is a bad idea. That's as bad an idea as the sun which is the third planet in our solar system. Is that true? The third planet from the sun. That's as bad an idea as the, as the earth saying to the sun, I'm sick and tired of my existence revolving around you. I'm going to break away from this relationship. I'm going to start living for myself. And the earth spins out of orbit. 
Now, you don't need to have past high school geography and science to know that if the earth did that, it wouldn't be long before the earth experienced death and difficulty because of that separation from what was meant to be its source, the sun. And that's the same with human beings. We've believed the illusion of our own glory and each one of us, the Bible says, has pulled away from God. And as we've done that, it's a kind of divorce from God that comes with unpleasant and painful consequences. Self-centeredness is at the root of so much that's wrong in our world. Whether it's mankind falling away from God, like we've been talking about, whether it's uh, one nation trampling on another, or one tribe oppressing another, or one spouse in conflict with another, those are all different manifestations of one root of self-centeredness. But for today, we want to zero in on self-centeredness and its effect on marriage. When we carry self-centeredness into a marriage... We go in thinking, hey, this person is going to meet my needs. He will complete me. They're going to help me achieve my goals. They're going to make my life better. Can you see what's happening? The very thing that broke mankind's relationship with God is threatening your relationship too. I know what you're thinking right now. If you're married... You might be sitting there and thinking, yes, Mr. Preacher, this is so true. My spouse's self-centeredness is the biggest problem in our marriage. I am so glad they are here, or I wish they were here. I will download the iTunes podcast for them and make sure they listen to it. If you're married, you might be thinking that. If you're single, you might be sitting there and thinking, Self-centered? Me? I don't think so. Now, single people, if you look around at the married people's faces right now, they're actually laughing inside. <laughs> and the reason that as marrieds we're laughing inside is because we remember so well that when we were the single sitting there, we thought self-centered? Me? I don't think so. But marriage has a way of revealing our self-centeredness like nothing else. And after you're married and you think that all of your self-centeredness has been revealed, if you then have children, you discover a whole new layer of self-centeredness. Marriage is like, it's like a small bridge with a 10-ton truck being driven over it. And as that 10-ton truck comes over the marriage bridge, all kinds of cracks start to appear in the bridge. The cracks were always there, but the truck driving over it made them so much more evident. And as human beings, the self-centeredness is always there, but it's often during marriage that it comes to the surface. Now, we've tried to make this as relevant as possible to the non-marrieds amongst us. Someone said to me after Sunday, they were a pastor who was visiting from another church, and they said, you know, the, the, the singles aren't going to listen, but you must tell them anyway. And I said, yeah, they probably aren't going to listen, but I must tell them anyway. So if you're not yet married, just put that back in your bank somewhere, your memory bank, and it'll become useful when you, uh, um, as life goes by. 
So here's the big question. Is there any hope for overcoming our self-centeredness? If you and I are going to overcome our self-centeredness, here are two things we need to do. Number one is own up to your self-centeredness. You've got to put up your hand and say, yes, that is me. The biggest problem in my marriage or the biggest potential problem in my future marriage is my selfishness. Don't excuse it. Own up to it. It's easy to notice the other person's self-centeredness. A few weeks ago, we were talking about having a log in our eye while we find it easy to see a speck of dust in someone else's eye. The best advice we can give any marriage this morning is for each partner to assume that your own self-centeredness is that marriage's biggest problem. That's step one. Own it. Don't excuse it. But that's just step one. Step two is to overcome our selfishness. We own up to it and we draw near to Christ. Where do we get that from? From Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 21. Here's what it says. It says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verses 19 to 21 describe the effects, the effects of verse 18. Verse 18 starts by saying we should be filled with the Spirit, and as we do that, the result will be we'll speak to one another with songs, and we'll know the inner joy of making music in our hearts to God, and we'll know the heartfelt gratitude that we, our hearts owe to God, and lastly, we'll be able to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So remember, we're talking about overcoming our selfishness, and the first key is to own up to your own selfishness, and the second key is to draw near to Christ. This verse shows us how to draw near to Christ, and it'll show us that as we double-click on three key phrases. The first phrase is, be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to draw close to Christ's presence. Any one of us who believes in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, but not all of us are making it a daily or even hourly priority to draw close to Christ's presence. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to submit to one another? In short, that means to put your self-centeredness to death by putting the other person first. It means to genuinely look out for their best, to put their needs ahead of your own, and to put in the time and energy and care that are needed to make that happen. Thirdly, what does it mean to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? It means to relate to someone else in a way that shows that Christ is a part of our lives, in a way that shows that Christ is near and Christ is worthy and that Christ is watching how you treat the other person. So what is the power of marriage? It means that in any marriage, it's not just the two of us, it's really the three of us. Said in another way, it means that we draw on Christ's nearness 
and allow Christ to produce a spirit-created unselfishness in us. Now, for those of us this morning who aren't followers of Jesus, I wouldn't be serving you well if I didn't briefly say something to you at this point. If your marriage is just the two of us, because you aren't followers of Jesus, you're at a serious disadvantage. The very first miracle Jesus ever did was turning water into wine at a wedding. Well, today Jesus still wants to be the wine that can make your marriage sing. Without Jesus, you might be able to acknowledge your selfishness, but you'll have a hard time overcoming it. But with Christ in your life, you'll have power in your corner. You'll have massive help from heaven. My encouragement to all of us is to open our hearts to Jesus. Invite him into your life and marriage. If you haven't done this yet and you'd like to, then at the end of this message, I'll lead you in a prayer where you can accept Jesus into your life, into your marriage, and learn to draw on his nearness and power and let him shape the way that you treat everyone around you. And by the way, if you're single and hoping to one day get married, can you see how you can already train for the future by even now letting Jesus help you so you can unselfishly love the people around you that you live and work and play with? Now, I know what you might be thinking at this stage. Chances are that one of two objections may have come to mind. The first objection is this. It's saying, hey, if isn't putting the needs of the other person before your own needs, isn't that, isn't that license for exploitation? In other words, wouldn't I become a doormat? But notice I didn't say putting the other person's wants and demands ahead of your own needs, that would be destructive. When someone you love deeply expects you to do that, the most loving thing you can do for them is help them to see their selfishness. A second objection might be, a marriage that's about laying down my life for another person's well-being, that, that, that just sounds so unfulfilling. Well, let's think it through together. And I propose this morning that there is no marriage that's more fulfilling than one in which both partners are committed to putting the other's needs first. Let's wrap up this point about the power of marriage by using two simple pictures. The first picture is of a triangle. And with this triangle, some of you have seen this before, there's Christ at the top. There's husband at the bottom on this side and wife at the bottom on this side. Triangle, Christ at the top. How can husband and wife get closer to each other? The answer is by each one drawing near to Christ. And as each one draws near to Christ, they draw nearer to one another. It's one of the best things you can do own up to your selfishness. Draw near to Christ. It will do your marriage good. The second picture is of two couples on the dance floor. Can I have two couples on the dance floor? Couple number one, you needn't be married, but you can be. 
I can see some wife saying, let's do it, and some husband saying, no. Everyone's avoiding eye contact with me at this point in time. Two volunteers, I will not embarrass you much. Tashinga, come on up. We'll show them how it's done. And give her a hand. Another couple. Please. We will have uh, Sean and Cynthia. Come on up. Great. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment two dance floors at two different parties. Okay? This side, we've got one dance floor. That side, another dance floor. Two couples, two different parties. Okay. And uh, on this side, we have a couple, but they each have headphones. Can someone donate some headphones to us momentarily? He didn't want to come up and dance, which I will not forget, but some headphones would be helpful. This was worth volunteering for now. It was worth volunteering for now, yeah. I don't, I don't have any earphones in me. No one's got earphones. You're all very, very spiritual. One set over here. Can we have a second set of earphones? Here they are. Please return them to their owners. Sean, you're in charge of that. Okay. Now, on this side over here, we have a couple, and we'll do a dancing illustration <laughs> next week as well, if you come. And they are listening to music and dancing together to the music. On this side over here, we have a couple on the dance floor, but they each have their own set of headphones. And they're each listening to totally different music. Maybe she's listening to classical music. Can you do a classical music dance for us? <laughs> no, you can't really. And he's listening to a totally different kind of music. Which couple will be in sync with one another? This one or that one? That one. Give them a hand and take your seats. Here's the point. Well done. As two people listen to the same song and align their lives to that song, they end up aligning their lives with each other. That's the way it is with marriage. A couple that has the same reference point in Christ will be in sync with one another. Just as an aside, for those of you who aren't yet married, can you see why the Bible instructs you to make sure that you pick a marriage partner who's listening to the same music song? To pick a marriage partner who's aligned their life to Christ. Because if you're a follower of Jesus and you've aligned your life to him and you pick a life partner who's aligned to a different song, that's a recipe for a lot of hurt for you and for them. So with our remaining time together, we're going to tackle the secret of marriage. Read Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 23 with me. It should be up on the screen. Let's read it out loud together. <clears throat> Wives, submit to your husbands... As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, 
so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. You can stop reading. I'll read on for you. And to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife actually just loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. The Bible says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. We looked at that in some detail last week. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself. And the wife must respect her husband. Paul's kind of unpacking the meaning of marriage. And as he's, as he's unpacking it, he, he makes the statement. He says, that, he says that this is a profound mystery. And if you've been married for a while, you may know what it's like after a long and hard day of trying to understand each other to put your head back on the pillow and think about your marriage and to say, this is a profound mystery. At times, marriage can seem to be an unsolvable puzzle. Marriage can feel like a maze in which you're lost. Paul, who wrote these words, wrote them in Greek, and the, 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 the Greek for a profound mystery is uh, mysterion mega. And mega means great and big, and mysterion just means either mystery or, if you like, a secret. And Paul is trying to help you and I understand the secret behind the strongest marriages, the secret behind the biggest behind the best marriages. Paul is saying that the secret of marriage is this. Marriage between a man and a woman, that means your marriage, whether it's present or past or future, marriage is designed by God to point to something much, much greater. The marriage relationship is created to point us to the ultimate relationship, which is Jesus' relationship with his people, his church. The marriage relationship is designed to point us to Jesus' relationship with us. Let's unpack this relationship between Christ's love for us and our love for one another. Just think with me for a moment about how Christ has loved us and how this empowers us to love one another. If you look at the way Christ loved us, Christ loved us with total commitment. 
Verse 25 says how Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's talking about the cross. This love isn't just a feeling. It's not just words. It's total commitment. It's blood, sweat, and tears. Christ really loved you and I to death. And when you experience Christ's love like this, it empowers you to love in the same way in your marriage. Because in love, marriage, we love not just with fuzzy feelings or winsome words, but we love with total commitment. If it means surrendering our lives for their well-being, then so be it. If it means pouring in energy and time into this relationship, even when you feel like you haven't got energy and time to give, so be it. If it means making a call every lunchtime just to catch up, even though you're crazy busy, so be it. If it means choosing a 62-year-old receptionist instead of a, 20, instead of a sexy 20-something who will tempt you sexually, so be it. We love with commitment. But the second thing we see, this is important, is that Christ loves us despite our coldness to him. Did you notice that? We spoke last week about Jesus on the cross being crucified. The crowds that he's been serving all his life, the crowds have been shouting, crucify him, crucify him. His cry from the cross is, Father, forgive them. And it wasn't just the crowds who were doing that, but his own disciples, Peter, James, and John. He took them aside on the last night he had together with them, and he said, hey guys, watch and pray. Peter, James, and John took that moment to take a nap. In other words, Jesus has seen our self-centeredness at its worst. And still he loves us. Maybe you can think back to one of your not-so-finest moments from the last 24 hours or the last week or the last month and realize that even in your worst moments and my worst moments, Jesus knows and still he loves us endlessly. When you experience, when you, no, no, not just when you hear about it, but when you experience experience Christ's love like this, it empowers you to do the same in your marriage. Do you ever feel like you're being crucified by your spouse? Then you know what Jesus felt. But even though they don't keep their side of the covenant, you still keep yours. Even if they're horrible and impatient towards you, you are kind and patient to them. Even if, they are, even if they are unfaithful and have an affair, but they're genuinely repentant and need your forgiveness, you're seriously open to taking them back again. It's as though you say to that person, if I were to deal with you in this relationship, in my own strength, 
I'd either scratch your eyes out or I'd run for the hills. But because of Christ's unconditional love for me, I'll stick around and stick with you till we get through this. That's the power of Christ's love in our lives and in our relationships. So the secret of marriage is this. Our love for each other in marriage points to something even greater than itself, and that is Christ's love for us. In closing, let's look at three implications of the secret of marriage. Firstly, if you're married, know that Christ wants your marriage to succeed. What God has joined together, the Bible says, let no man separate. Why? Because what God has joined together is something that is made, designed by its very nature, to reflect the glory of God in the way that Jesus has loved us, the church. If that is at stake, if marriage is a picture of Christ and the church itself, heaven wants your marriage to succeed. Jesus is committed to the well-being of your marriage. Secondly, a second implication of the secret of marriage is that you can let Christ's love for you overcome your self-centeredness. Humility and selflessness isn't so much about thinking less of yourself as it is about thinking of yourself less. And when we find ourselves in the gospel narrative of a God who made a perfect creation that rebelled against him and divorced him, and yet he sent his son Jesus to woo us back with cords of loving kindness, and he died on a cross for us. And he's brought us back to himself. And he gives forgiveness freely to rebels like you and I. As we start to understand that, it helps us to overcome our self-centeredness. The gospel, that story, it tells me two things about myself. The first thing it tells me is that I am so, more sinful than I ever realized. Did you know that? If I hadn't heard that story, if the Bible hadn't revealed it to me, I'd have gone through my life, all 38 years to date, I'd have gone through that thinking, do you know what, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. Anyone else here think of themselves like that? Well, the Bible says... I and you are so bad that nothing but the death of the Son of God and Him bearing the wrath of God in our place could rescue the situation. The gospel tells me I'm more sinful than I ever realized. And what that means is as, as I go through life and still happening to me at the age of 38 and I uncover new levels of sinfulness, I'm not necessarily shocked. In fact, I think to myself, no wonder Jesus had to die for me. The gospel tells me that I'm more sinful than I ever realized. But the second thing it tells me 
is I am more loved than I ever dreamt possible. And if you can hear the sound of my voice this morning, God wants you to know that you are more loved than you ever dreamt possible. When you get that the greatest being in the universe is totally committed to you and totally values you even though you failed, then what does it matter what others think of you? Do you see how that affirms you to the stars? It's the kind of affirmation that goes to work in overcoming our self-neediness. Lastly, and this is probably the most important point of this morning, lastly, don't idolize earthly love and marriage. They are not the main thing. Follow the reasoning. Man and woman come together. God has joined it together. But that is not about that. That is actually about this. This, that down here is actually about Christ's relationship with his people. That is what is at stake in marriage. And what that means is that marriage and love are not the ultimate thing in this game. In fact, we can learn a new word this morning, and that word is penultimate. Can you turn to the person next to you and say penultimate? Now turn back to them and say, what does that even mean? What it means is this. Ultimate means the last and greatest thing in a series. Penultimate means it's not quite ultimate. But it's just beneath the ultimate. It's penultimate. And what the Bible shows us in Ephesians chapter 5 is that love and marriage are not ultimate. And this is where, this is where our, our thinking gets twisted. Because we're bombarded with the media and with magazines and music songs and pop hits that tell us that love is the ultimate thing. Being in love. How many of you are old enough to remember the song that says, Love, love changes. Sing with me. Love can make the summer fly or the night seem like a lifetime. That's just one out of a million songs that I could pick that, that makes love and being in love and having that feeling that makes that the ultimate thing. But the Bible says, no, 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 no. God created marriage. God created people being in love. But that is not ultimate. What is ultimate is Christ's love for us. How does that apply in our lives? If you are single... If you're single, if you're married, if you were married, it applies to each of us in a different way because it teaches us that love is not ultimate. Christ's love for us is ultimate. A man-woman relationship can never be ultimate. Christ's relationship with us is what is ultimate. And where Christ created us to find identity and belonging and security and purpose is in our relationship with him, not in our relationship with another human being. No human being can ever do for you in a relationship what God said that he wants to do for you and has done in his son, Jesus Christ. 
What does that mean? It means that if you are single and considering one day getting married and you're thinking, oh wow, I can't wait to be married and when I get married, we're going to go for walks in Karura Forest together and he's going to complete me and, and, and we're just going to be perfect soulmates and that's going to make my life perfect. Can you see how right now you are already loading that future relationship with an unbearable weight of expectation that is bound to disappoint? And you're forgetting that even now, when you don't have the penultimate, you can enjoy what is ultimate, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ, who has loved you to death and will never, ever let you down. You can enjoy that right now, today. Being single rocks. And if you're married, I hope I didn't make that child cry. My apologies. I don't mind the noise from the back as long as you don't mind the noise from the front. <laughs> if you're in a marriage that's presently aching with conflict or problems, yet you still believe that your partner is supposed to complete you and save you and fill you, do you understand why you're feeling such despair? You're deepening your pain and missing out on the fact that even in a marriage that's far from perfect, you still have the ultimate love relationship even in your pain. And if you're married and all is well and stable, but you yearn for that excitement and intensity that you once knew, and even now maybe you fantasize about finding it with another person, you're buying into the lie that there's another person out there who can complete and save and fill you. No affair is going to satisfy you other than devastating your family and integrity. It'll still leave you empty. And if you're widowed or divorced and you feel like life is not worth living anymore, please remember that even in your devastating loss, you haven't lost what is ultimate. The power of marriage is in it not being just the two of us, but the three of us. And the secret of marriage is that it's not just about your love for one another, but it points to Christ's love for us. I'd love to pray for you. Have you yet opened your life to Christ? Have you placed your faith in him and received his love and forgiveness? If not, then can I invite you to do that now? I can lead you in a prayer right now. If you, regardless of whether you're single or married, want to build your life more upon Christ, His near, nearness, His power and His love, and if you want to make Him truly ultimate in your life, let me pray for you too. bow our heads, Lord Jesus. We want to thank you for your love for every single person in this room. We want to thank you that even though we are more sinful than we ever realized, that there is one who has loved us despite our very worst moments. And God, for any man, woman, or child who hasn't yet received your forgiveness, 
God, I pray that right now you come into their life. Forgive them for every sin, past, present, and future. And put their life under new management, your management. God, I want to thank you for the power of your word this morning. God, I thank that you can use even an imperfect vessel like me to convey your truth. And God, it's my prayer for each one of us that heaven's truth would resound in our hearts throughout the remainder of this week. That you'd give us an increasing awareness of the ultimate relationship we have in you. That God, we wouldn't just hear, but that we would know and experience your love that would die on a cross for us. And God, because of that acceptance, because of that example, because of that sacrifice, God, help us to do the same in our relationships, in our work relationships, in our family relationships, in our friendships. God, especially in our marriages. God, I pray for those who are not yet married. God, I pray that somehow you would make truth stick in their hearts so that they would make the right decisions now that will affect them, affect their future spouse if they get married, that can affect whole families and generations and dynasties. So God, we thank you for your work amongst us. Keep on working, we pray. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Great. Thanks, Simonisi. And guys, we're going to go to the ministry fair now. Um, and it's such a great uh, thing to do practically, even in response to this message. The, the awesome thing about this love story is that it's not just a love story between God and us individually, but it's between God and his people collectively. Um, so this is really what this is about. It's not about the church saying, hey guys, we want you to be busy and have lots of things to do every week. But it's about saying that God's actually saved us to be in a right relationship with him, but also placed us in a body where we get to grow together, where we get to encourage each other, where we get to step into the destiny that God has for each of us as sons and daughters of God. The Bible says that each of us has, got, has been wired in a certain way and we've been given gifts and passions that God says we need to fan into flame. So really, um, I hope we can go and have a lot of fun at the ministry fair just asking about all the exciting things that are happening in the church and seeing where you can get involved. We're going to go down to the tea tables and there'll be individual stands where you can uh, and move around and interact and at 11.30 those of you who have kids I'm just going to remind you to go and fetch your kids the kids are going to be with the kids workers until 11.30 so let's move down now to the tea tables and have a wonderful week after the ministry fair as well God bless